Welcome to another Sustainable Wine Blog podcast with me, Toby Webb, and joining me in this podcast is the original wine podcast himself, Chris Scott. So, uh, welcome, Chris. Hi, Toby. Thanks very much for calling. Well, you know, there aren't that many wine podcasts about, to be fair. There's there's loads on iTunes, but they they all seem to fizzle out after about one or two, and you've been very consistent for a long time. Yeah, I think nine Um, years or eight years now. Yeah, Yeah, the UK Wine Show is a great podcast. I commend you to it, listeners. I've learned a huge amount about wine from listening to it, and as I travel quite a lot, I just download them all and just sit there and have them on a loop when I... I think you probably learned more. I think I've probably slept through a number of your podcasts and <laughs> woken up knowing a load of stuff about wine. So thank, thank you. I know it's a labour of love sometimes because they're very difficult. So, because um, you talk to lots of winemakers, mm-hmm. you visit lots of vineyards. You also talk to people in the trade as well because you're involved in that side of things. So, from a winemaker point of view, first of all, where is sustainability on their agenda at the moment in, in general? If it's possible to, to to have a general answer, I think it's probably based around two areas all right on the one side you've got people going down the organics and biodynamic route and they're very focused on sustainability within the vineyard Um, so they're very you know keeping the soils good all that sort of stuff uh, trying to minimize insecticides and pesticides and all those sort of things and trying to make sure the vineyard itself produces good quality fruit and they're very passionate about it and they're very obsessed with it but on the same token, these people are then putting them into huge, heavy bottles and shipping them off. And they're not too worried about sustainability once they've made their wine almost. Um, you get a lot of people who are organic and biodynamics. And, and some of the heaviest bottles you'll ever see around the world come from organic and biodynamic producers. And that's fine in their market. For example, in France, they consume a lot of glass. And therefore, there's not as much of a waste with glass, for example, whereas by the time the wine gets to England, and we have a massive oversupply of green glass in this country, that extra weight is completely weight useless. You know, it doesn't go down, in, you know, it goes into the road aggregate if you're lucky, uh, or landfill if you're not. Uh, so on the one hand, you've got people trying to, to focus in on the vineyard, and to me that is sustainable, but it's a very narrow focus. Um, on the other hand, you've got... Uh, producers, particularly in New Zealand, for example, because that's the one I've spent a lot of time talking to people about sustainability. Mm. Um, and New Zealand had a, a big push to try and get pretty much everybody into a sustainable viticultural process. Mm. And that's quite a different process because on the one hand, yes, they want to make good quality fruit, but at the same time, they're looking at the whole vineyard and the whole winery and all the waste, as well as the packaging and the shifting of product. So I think there's almost two different approaches to sustainability whether you're focused on the vineyard or whether you're focused as a business in in its totality I think that's a good point a lot of winemakers I've met you know they they talk about it as something that makes sense in the vineyard but you ask them about what happens after it leaves and they look at you blankly and say well that's up to the negociant or that's up to whoever we've happened to to sell the wine to and coming back to the New Zealand example I hear really contrasting things about the environment in New Zealand. I've, I've been down there a couple of times. A friend of mine used to run a wine business down there called Tohu. Um, Tohu in Yeah, in yeah. Uh, Nelson. Um, and talking to him and other people um, when, I, when I was last there and, and looking at it recently, New Zealand has this reputation for this sort of green, verdant, environmentally friendly land. And, and people, when I was there, would say to me, actually, it's not really like that. You know, we, we're actually not that environmentally friendly. And I have heard that there has been an awful lot of, sort of chemical use over the, over the years in, in New Zealand. What's your sense of, of what, how true or not that, that is? I think there's two elements. Again, um, there's the cultural element. And as New Zealanders, we grew up with, you know, slogans like keep 
keep New Zealand green and all that sort of thing. But because there's a small population, you know, it's four million people, four and a half million people now. And a million of them are on the road at any one time. <laughs> yeah, half a million are in Earl's <laughs> Court in London. <laughs> um, well, they used to be, I don't know about now. No, probably still are. Um, there's less environmental pressure on the land because there's not that intensity on the land there. So um, whilst I would say Kiwis feel like they're doing a good job, there's a lack of environmental pressure to necessarily do it. But you, you talk to people and, and they are really interested in trying to maintain it, and especially because we've grown up with a big part of the market. Marketing of New Zealand is mm. keep it green. And there is a lot of social pressure in New Zealand to toe the line. Uh, and as a result of that, I think you'll find that maybe in the past there might have been a little bit of herbicides and you know all that sort of stuff being used enthusiastically um, I think you'll find that people are really getting interested and they're trying to reduce that sort of thing um, I was in doing a, interview, a podcast strangely enough with a guy who makes uh, posts for vineyards posts for vineyards you'll think what the heck who cares about that I, I actually listen to stuff like that yeah. I like that kind of thing but, and there are quite a few of us come on you, you've made a business out of it yeah, yeah. but um this guy, you know, he's using hardwood instead of, um, in New Zealand the tradition was tantalised fence posts. Uh, and the idea with tantalised fence posts is they've got that green colour to them, so they're really long-lasting and, and damp, adverse conditions. They're rock-proof. Um, but the problem is they leach those chemicals into the soils, mm. which means it gets into the vineyard. So people are really interested in trying to mitigate a lot of those things that, as they become aware of them, they're trying to mitigate them. And I think with New Zealand's pushed, I think it's, all, I'm not sure if it's 100% sustainable now, or it's pretty close to everybody being sustainable. There's that pressure on people, not necessarily to, to give up their favourite herbicide, but there's pressure on people to reduce their inputs and mm -hmm. um, reduce their packaging, as well as trying to make decent quality grapes. And New Zealand stands by premium quality wines, as well as being that green credential. So when people start to buck the trend and do something that's a little bit naughty, yeah. you know, you can you can feel a lot of peer pressure coming yeah. on you. Well, that tall poppy syndrome will be tall sustainability syndrome. Yeah, in, yeah. well, yeah, Zealand. people <laughs> talk about tall poppies in New Zealand getting their heads chopped off. Yeah. Uh, but if you're the guy who's not being environmentally friendly, mm. you'll you'll get your head chopped off as well. Yeah, well, that's good to hear how how things are changing. And you would have thought, you know, nowhere has a better opportunity to brand itself as the sustainable export nation. Than, than New Zealand, probably in many ways, apart from you know. But well, Ireland is trying very hard on beef and and other things. But um, coming back to um, to sustainability in wine in, in general, we're, we're at our sustainable drinks conference here at Diageo's headquarters in Park Royal. You can hear some clinking in the background as they change up the the, the coffee. And um, and just after this, we're going to have a what I hope will be a semi spicy debate with <laughs> with Chris Myers from Shutted Palmer and, and Monty Walden, who's a well known. Um, organic, natural, biodynamic wine writer. And you've interviewed him. Yeah, and, and Chris been, Myers. Um, and Chris, of course. And, and you were a bit sceptical about organics and biodynamics in, in yeah. your podcast questions with, with Monty. So just give us a quick preview of the, of the sort of points you might raise in the discussion we're, we're going to be having. What's, what's your beef with the sort of full-on organic, biodynamic movement? Well, I don't actually have a problem with organics and biodynamics. And let's be fair, I think they're, they're doing a great job in raising the price point that people purchase the wine at. From a marketing point of view, 
biodynamics and organics has a premium price for the product. Um, and it's probably a little bit higher than the value of the wine that they're selling. Do you know what I mean? If you were to get an equivalent quality yeah. wine, biodynamic or organic wines for that quality would be just a little bit more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's driven partly because it's difficult to do biodynamics and organics, um, or it has been in the past. Um, I suppose we mentioned earlier about the glass weighting. So I think biodynamic and organic people are very focused on on their patch and that they're, they're not necessarily focused always on the big picture. There are people who are very good at that, um, that do focus on the big picture, but it's not a requirement of biodynamics or organics to really take in that holistic whole uh, vineyard or whole um, chain really. Yeah, uh, so a circular economy of value chain approach. Exactly. So it's just about the vineyard, so perhaps it, you feel it's a bit limited. I think it's definitely limited and I think um, sometimes it, they are quite happy to do things that I consider environmentally unfriendly, mm. but they meet the requirement. A classic one is you know, hel- helicopter spraying and champagne mm. and places like that where you know you can spray your vineyard using a helicopter. Fabulous, you're using all your, you're, you're applying all the, the chemicals that you need to, whether uh, preparations is what they like to call them, but chemicals. Mm. Uh, preparations, that's preparations. Pretty, <laughs> a brilliantly misleading term, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit like when companies talk about right sizing when they mean laying people off. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, they're preparations or chemicals. Um, you, you're, you can do that, you can achieve all you need to do, mm. but you're doing it in an incredibly environmentally unfriendly way. Yeah. Um, so there's a focus on that narrowness, which I think is, which is, isn't necessarily sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, within a, a maybe a larger picture, sustainability would be all right. And some people look at the big picture. Uh, you've got producers in New Zealand uh, who, who like uh, Yeelands, mm-hmm. and they're very focused right through the vineyard all the way through, even in the packaging, although their glass bottles are a bit heavy, um, that, that look at the whole process all the way through. So I think there's that element. Um, let me, I haven't got my notes, let me think. Um, well, let me ask you, while you're, while you're pondering further about, about plastic bottles, in the earlier discussion, we heard uh, Accolade Wines talking about looking at PET plastic bottles yeah. and having a real concern about whether people will buy them off the shelf because they might feel it's a bit sort of park bench, you know, as a teenager buying cheap cider or, or whatever. Um, do you think it's realistic that, that wine can be marketed, good wine can be marketed in, in high-end PET? Well, good wine can be marketed in bag and box. So is it, it in Scandinavia it can be yeah where they've right. got good quality wines in bag and box right. uh, because you know you go on a trek into the into the the woods you want a nice bottle of wine you don't want to be carrying all that glass work, yeah. weight with you so um, in some countries bag and box can be quite enough you know for mm. quality wines um, so I, I personally have no problems with PET as long as it's the right bottle for the right time mm. uh, I, just something a little bit more different um, just one thing that uh, for example organics you very rarely see an organic producer go to screw cap you are no. seeing some of them but they like their corks mm. and biodynamic guys like their corks the natural wine guys they're insane they'd never put it in a screw cap mm. but if you look at the cost of carbon from a failure of a cork mm. it's huge yeah. it doesn't matter what environmental uh, element you consider with regard to the cork yeah. if your bottle fails all that glass all that wine all the inputs to make that wine are wasted yes but that doesn't happen very often does it i mean how many bottles of wine have you opened in the last five years that had cork taint um it's not as bad as it used to be yeah. uh, it used to be about one in 20 that's what i hear yeah but um, now it's what one, one in, in probably one in 40 one in 50 okay so, so still still uh, Five percent. Yeah, There's some wines that are really bad, like Riocas. Oh, Riocas yeah. are just terrible. We yeah. we we have one wine that 
you know, it's just Russian roulette. Is it going to be corked? Is it not going to be corked? Wow. Okay. Uh, because they're just using cheap corks. Right. Why? Because obviously people aren't sending the bottles back yeah. uh, and saying, look, we need a credit note for this. So, um, no, there are, there are problems with, with that. Uh, but I don't have a problem with PET. I don't have a problem with bag and box. Do, I like do you it. think we'll see a time when, well, better known, I'm not saying top end because I don't think they'll go for it in any, any years to come that I can foresee, but, but you know, where you're, you're, you're sort of 15, 20 quid a bottle wines could be comf- confident enough to market themselves in, in PET that can be more easily recycled. No, 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 because once you get over about 20 pounds, the, the good isn't about price quality, it's a luxury good. Mm. And luxury goods need to have the whole positioning of luxury goods yeah. to get the value of luxury goods like whiskey bottles and that kind of thing. all that sort of mm. things and, and the trouble is plat- people still pick up a bottle and go oh it's heavy that must be a good bottle of wine yeah. and and that's why a lot of luxury goods tend to have quite heavy glass mm-hmm. also the incremental cost of the glass compared to the yeah. to the sales price is a lot less so there's no there's none of that pricing sensitivity to do that so I don't think luxury goods will ever go down the plastic bottle um, unless it's maybe for a miniature on a flight or something like that where yeah. they have to do that for, for airplane standards and mm. weight allowances there. Yeah. And, and you can. You can see plastic bottles on flights with premium wines, actually. So mm. they are there. They mm. are there already. It's just that they're not really there. They're in a very specific case. Okay. One final question. Um, I ask every winemaker I meet if they're worried about climate change. And most of them say, oh, yes, we're very concerned. Alcohol levels are going up. Temperatures are going up. My grandfather talks of 10%, 11% wine. Now I'm struggling to keep it at 15, and actually maybe it's 16, because, you know, we all, we all round down rather than rounding up. But then I was in Provence last week meeting a few winemakers, and I, and, I, and I asked a few of them, and a few of them said, I went, nah, not really. Not, not an issue for us. Not really seen any changes. Um, so... <laughs> What's your experience of talking to winemakers about this? And are they just sort of towing the political line of, you know, they feel like they should say that they're very worried about it? Um, I think if you're a French producer, ultimately in the long run you must be concerned uh, because France is very much about certain grapes in certain regions. And one of the problems that will happen with climate change is ultimately the grapes will have to change. The ones that are grown in certain regions will need to change. You know, you're seeing that now with uh, in Bordeaux with an uptake in Petit Verdot and people trying to reintroduce Carmenere and even Malbec back into Bordeaux because these grapes in the old days couldn't ripen reliably. Mm. But now with a little bit of warmth extra, they'll start to become more reliable. So I think some regions where the grape variety and the region go hand in hand will have problems personally but there's there's lots of reasons why alcohol levels could be going up you know one of them is viticulture better viticultural practices the vines aren't as diseased mm-hmm. so removing diseased vine means that the vines are more vigorous uh, they can produce more sugars and higher alcohol levels as well so and more water as well i mean i saw a report from the from the states where they're allowed to water their vines that you know, more water equals more sugar equals more alcohol less stressed vines so more water will could if it's used too much, will reduce your sugar level concentration okay. because the grapes will swell up further. Mm. But if you've got a vine that's stressed, it won't go through photosynthesis as much. Mm. So it depends on the level of water that okay. you're using. Too much. What, what about the New World then? You know, New Zealand, Chile, places like should they be as worried as the French about climate change? Um, well, if you call the New World, Chile, the Southern Hemisphere, they're they're going to get off scot free 
or virtually scot-free. If you look at all the climate models, it's the northern hemisphere that the temperature rises are going to be the biggest because of the larger land masses in the northern hemisphere. New Zealand's going to have a very small change. You know, obviously sea levels will be a massive influence for them, but New Zealand is, is going to get away with it. Most of Australia's production is moving to the coast now anyway. Or, you know, you, you see all the movement from the inland uh, riverland and riverina areas, mm. and they're, they're bigging up the coastal areas as well. And if you're by the coast you're going to get more of a cooling influence from the sea anyway. Yeah. So I, I think it's less of a problem for what you might deem as southern hemisphere producers. Okay. Even even South Africa, you know, you've got the, uh, what is it, the, uh, I forgot the name of the current that goes up the side there. It is the, oh, I can't remember. Humboldt? No, that's Chile. That's Chile. No, yeah. uh, oh, I know it normally. Oh, well. <laughs> Under pressure. <laughs> we'll, we'll Google it and post it on the net. So uh, what you're saying really is a, a very much a mixed picture. I think it is. I think it is. If I was a northern hemisphere producer mm. whose vineyards are based around particular grape varieties and they don't really have got rules that fix them onto those grape varieties, yeah. I'd be more nervous than I would be, say, someone in New Zealand or, or Chile, for example. Um, yeah, America, California, you've seen the problems that California's got at the moment with yeah. its water more than anything else, and that's going to have a massive influence uh, on their ability to produce uh, in the inland areas like Central Valley. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, Chris, let's draw this pro- podcast to a close. Thank you so much for your time and insights today and uh, keep up the great work on, uh, on the UK Wine Show. Cheers very much, mate.